It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ, a Chicago Bulls podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We're officially only two weeks away from the draft and it's starting to feel a little real now. So on today's show, I definitely want to hit on some draft topics, but there's been some other noteworthy Bulls news that I wanted to touch on too. And helping me to do that today is my pal, Will Gottlieb from Bleacher Report. Will, how are you doing, man? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me on. It's been a little while. It has been a while, but um, it, look, we've been trying to organize this for a little bit uh, I know. Um, for the last few weeks, but you've been kind of busy with your uh, your playoff action here. You're a, you're a Bulls fan, but at the same time, you've actually had some playoff coverage to to, to look after with the Warriors, and uh, I don't know how, I don't know how much longer that's going to be, but you, you've been a bit, uh, tough to get a hold of because the Warriors have been um, they've been going deep into the into the finals as as we've sort of seen. Yeah, one of the teams I cover actually did make it to the playoffs this year and it did yeah. make it out of the first and second round. So yeah, it's been a little bit busy, but I'm glad we could uh, find some time here. No, all good. Thanks for, thanks for coming on, particularly when we're recording this after after game four. It's the day after game four. I know you're pretty tired given um, given how things are sort of played out with this final. So thanks for coming on. But I wanted to talk about that lesser team, the one that isn't in the playoffs. I wanted to talk about our Chicago Bulls and I wanted to talk about some of the things that... I guess the newsworthy topics that have hit the Bulls in the last week, they're not necessarily game-changing things. Obviously, as a Bulls podcast, we have to hit on them. And I wanted to start with the Bulls hiring Roy Rogers as an assistant coach. So for those that aren't aware, the Bulls had interviewed Roy Rogers. I think it was it sort of broke in the middle of the week, if I'm not mistaken, but they interviewed him. And then basically a few hours later, it, it reports surfaced that the, that the Bulls have came to terms with Roy Rogers, a former assistant under Mike D'Antoni, to a three-year deal to work under Jim Boylan. So for the, those that aren't aware, Rogers is mostly known as a defensive assistant. He comes to the Bulls after a stint with uh, Dan, D'Antoni in Houston, but he's also spent some time with the Boston Celtics, the um, the Nets, the Wizards, the Pistons, often under Lawrence Frank. So he's he's, he's served a pretty good apprenticeship here, what from based on based on his resume, and based on I guess the the praise that you often hear from these assistant coaches, which is often the case when these guys sort of get hired. There's, you never really hear about a bad assistant coach at, at this time when they're being hired, but. I mean, from all reports, it sounds like Roy Rogers seems to be like a good assistant coach. He, he gets often praised for the work that he did with Clint Capella and his de- uh, his development. So I would expect him to be working closely with with the young bigs the Bulls have. And Rogers him, himself, he played in the NBA. He went to Alabama and he came into the league as a six foot ten defensive center, I suppose. So he is going to be that defensive specialist, that big man specialist that the Bulls need. So. Will, what do you what do you make of this signing? Can we make too much of it at all? Given that I personally hold the opinion that we don't necessarily know what the assistant coach does or doesn't necessarily do on the same level that the, that a head coach does. So, what are we to make of this hire, and what should we be expecting? Yeah, I mean, you look at what assistants do, and it's a little bit hard to quantify. Uh, before Fred Hoiberg was let go or fired or whatever term you want to use. Uh, all we really knew about Jim Boylan was that he was a defensive guy. Um, and every time I talked to him, you know, he was very bright about all that stuff. And then when he took over, it seemed like everything was going to hell. So 
I think all that's settled down a little bit, as John Paxson would love to tell you, but um, it is a little bit hard to quantify. What I know about Rodgers is that the players really like him, and he is a hard worker and, and gets a lot out of the players, especially the big men. He's kind of known for uh, developing young bigs. You mentioned Clint Capella. That was one of the things that I heard. Um, and I think if you kind of want to translate over to what the Bulls are going to get out of him, like, obviously they're kind of looking for somebody that can develop Wendell Carter, but I think uh, Markkinen's also probably going to get a lot out of Rodgers. Uh, you, you saw a lot last year and during his rookie season, Markkinen trying to post up and just not really having the, I don't know, the polish, I guess, in the post. And hopefully Roy Rogers will kind of unlock some of that, which will then in turn unlock some of his perimeter game. Um, and I think with uh, Wendell as well, just making plays out of the short roll, um, kind of adding a little bit to his low post game to uh, expand what he can do. So I think that's kind of what they're looking for out of him. So it would seem that Boylan has brought in some guys with uh, at least a nice resume. Like I said before, we don't necessarily know too much about these assistants as to how they sort of manage the game, what their tasks are, but we can really only go based on their their previous stops, what their resume are, what their resume is rather, and what people generally say about these guys, which like I said, is typically always positive. But I think what I like about this hiring more than more than anything else is the fact that it's another person from outside the organization who can bring different ideas to the team. We, we saw that with Chris, uh, Chris Fleming when he came on, came in to be the lead offensive assistant under Jim Boylan. Even Boylan himself came from outside of the Bulls organization. So I think that's probably the most... I don't, I don't know, exciting is probably too strong of a word to describe this given it's only an, ex, an assistant coaching hire. I think that's been the, the biggest positive for me in terms of the Bulls going out and getting Chris Fleming and now Roy Rogers. But I guess my question is, do you expect them to have enough clout to potentially change what we saw on offense and defense under Boylan? Or should, should we sort of be expecting more of the same where Boylan is effectively controlling the scenario and doing what he wants? So I'm not sure what Fleming's actual role was. From what I've kind of read on Twitter and, and stuff like that, he was more of an offensive-minded uh, player development coach. Um, and I think Roy Rogers is kind of known for his development, but he was also a big part of building up that defense. Um, when he joined the Rockets in 2016, they were, I believe, like a t- bottom half defense and then went into the top 10. Uh, that's obviously he did that alongside, uh, Jeff Bedzelik. So he's got a lot of experience working with good defensive minds. That's all well and good. But what I really like about both of these signings, um, in addition to what you mentioned, which I think is a really good point is that they're both player development guys that the bulls are not focusing on, like necessarily adding the best tacticians right now. I think they're maybe a, a little bit away from that, but um, just the fact that they're focusing on developing skills of the young players on this roster, that seems to be a good sign. Yeah, look, I, I, I'm pretty happy with how the, the coaching staff has shaped that. I'll repeat it again. We we, te- we, we typically don't know how these guys are sort of going to materialize, particularly when they step into bigger roles. I mean, we saw that with Jim Boyle, and I know when the Bulls brought him in from San Antonio to be that associate head coach for Fred Hoiberg, I was actually pretty happy about the move given his resume, but as we sort of saw when he stepped into that head coaching role, I had my um, I had my problems with him. So we never know how these guys are going to fare in a new role, in a different city, whatever it may be. But I think on face value, at least, it seems like the hiring of Fleming and now Rogers to su- support Boylan kind of makes complete sense. So I'm, I'm happy with the way this coaching staff is sort of shaped out. But moving on to the next topic I want to talk about, it's... I don't know if we really should talk about this, but because I don't know how much stock we should put into this rumor at all, but or this reporting rather. But I'm referring to the Bulls potentially pursuing Boston Celtics free agent forward Marcus Morris in the off season, and the report itself came from uh, Shams Terania. He reported that the Bulls will be one of five teams that will chase Marcus Morris in free agency, and I suppose the reason why I'm sort of hot and cold as to whether we should be talk- talking about this topic at all is the fact that it kind of read like an agent trying to drum up value for their client, just listing out, you know, big market teams who may have interest in, in their, in their client to potentially extract more value. At least that's 
what I read into it, but the team said to be chasing Marcus Morris aside from the Chicago Bulls includes the Knicks, the Lakers, the Clippers, and the Sacramento Kings. So apart from the Kings there, they're three big market teams along with the Bulls there as well. So we'll see where it ends up, but it's possible all four of those teams could be playoff teams depending on how the offseason pans out. I don't expect the Bulls to be in the playoffs, which leads me to believe they'd have to pay more for Morris to bring in to bring him into a non-playoff team as a bench piece over potentially being a, a starter or even a bench guy on a playoff team. So it's hard to know how much stock to put into, the report, into this report as it may just be an agent trying to drum up value for his client. But assuming there's some truth to it, should the Bulls be chasing a guy like Morris when they, like, when they would ha- likely have to overpay him to actually get it done? A guy like Morris? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Morris specifically, probably not. Uh, Morris is, this was his 20, age 29 season. He played 28 minutes a game on, you know, one of the top teams in the East. Uh, he was, he was like a pretty impact player on a good team. And like you mentioned, he's going to be, you know, you're going to have to overpay to get him. He's probably going to be coming off the bench. That probably means that you're going to try to slot him into a lot of minutes at the three, because you want to get, uh, marking in as many minutes as possible at the four. It just doesn't really seem like the perfect fit, but um, you know, he, he kind of represents toughness and grit and all these things that Jim Boylan and, and Pax want to embody as a team. So I, I get why they're in the running for him or, or have been linked to him. Um, but I think there are probably other players who have some of those same qualities that you could look to um, maybe not in the prime of their careers that might make a little bit more sense. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose they, they do need a, a veteran off the bench that, that would sort of help guide this team and, you know, particularly a tough-minded player. I think that kind of makes sense. And I've, I've spoken about the or my desire, at least, of bringing back Taj Gibson. But specifically for Morris, at least to my vantage point, he seems like a questionable character from a locker room sense. I mean, that Boston locker room was kind of fractious, so it's hard to maybe necessarily pinpoint it on one person, whether it was... Morris himself, whether it was Kyrie Irving, whether it was Terry Rozier, whether it was someone else. But I don't know if he necessarily improves your locker room. So I'm just kind of worried that that type of veteran in this type of situation where it's possible that the Bulls go through another tough season where they've got a a roster full of young kids and then you're bringing in this 29-year-old guy who's going to be coming coming off the bench but may end up wanting to start given that those in front of him aren't necessarily established players. I just wonder if the character fit makes sense for this team. Yeah. I mean, I think the bulls do need veteran leadership. I think over the past couple of seasons, they've tried to look for that in a variety of different ways. And like Lopez has been kind of the, the stable veteran in the locker room. Uh, We don't know if he's coming back and you can't just put out a team that has like Zach Levine and Carter and Mark. Like there needs to be somebody there. I don't, I don't know really what to make of his character. I know that just looking at this season, in a vacuum, he was kind of on Team Kyrie in the locker room there uh, in Boston, and it's hard to know what to really make of that dynamic. Like, was that Kyrie being just a kind of weirdo the way that Jimmy Butler or people think Jimmy Butler has been, or were the young players in that locker room really not working that hard, really not kind of understanding what it takes to play a certain brand of basketball that can result in wins? Um, I don't want to speculate too much about that, but I do think that the Bulls need a guy who will pull out some, uh, pull some like positive energy from the younger guys and kind of teach them what it means to win games and not just put up numbers. Yeah, I mean, I I, I certainly agree with that. I, I just I just don't know if Marcus Morris is the the type of guy. Yeah, I, I don't know if Marcus is the guy or not, but yeah, and I think his best position is probably power forward in the NBA right now. Yeah, for so sure. So you would assume that he would be like a small forward, or sorry, a small ball forward off the bench, meaning he'd play a lot of power forward. But I don't know if the Bulls necessarily need to get a, you know, that type of player because I think they almost have that in in Otto Porter. I think sliding him to the four kind of makes sense in bench units. But depending on what they do in the draft as well, particularly if they get someone like DeAndre Hunter, who I think he's probably going to be playing a lot more four than some people realize in the NBA. I think... I think if that happens, then you probably don't need a player like Marcus Morris and you can sort of invest your your coin into maybe more of a traditional big like Gibson is, I suppose. 
But uh, it, it's something to, to think about. But again, assuming they are chasing Marcus Morris, well, what is the appropriate dollar value that you sort of assign for a, a bench forward to sort of come in and be that, almost like that Bobby Portis role, I suppose. Obviously, the Bulls didn't want to play Bobby Portis, bringing in Marcus Morris is maybe like bringing him in a uh, mature age version of, of Bobby Portis. But what should the Bulls be budgeting for that type of player if they are assuming to be chasing someone like Morris? Yeah, what was the number? That was a good uh, good thought. What was the number that um, Bobby turned down on a year-to-year basis? I, th- I think it was about $12 million off the top of my head, 10 or $12 million, something like that. I want to say it was a four-year $50 million deal, four-year 48, something stupid like that. Yeah, I mean, you look at some of the other contracts for similar players. I know Taj was making 14 a year. He had a two-year deal. Um, and he was a starter, I believe, for the, for the most part in – Minnesota, but he's also a little bit older. Personally, I just don't think that like investing in true power forwards is the way to go. And I know you, you wanted to wait to get into this a little bit later, but um, I think the Bulls really have to look themselves in the mirror at this point and try to figure out what kind of basketball they want to play, what style, what brand they want to be, uh, and go backwards from there um, as far as investing in specific players. Because you're right. I mean, they have Markinen at the four. They have Otto Porter, who I think is primarily a four playing the three. Um, you know, I think Wendell should probably have, ideally he's just a five, but I think right now he looks like more of a four and probably should play some minutes along, alongside somebody like Robin Lopez to kind of uh, cover up for some of what he doesn't do. Um, the Bulls have a ton of bodies that they can play at the four, and I would rather them invest in other positions um, and other skill sets yeah definitely I mean obviously the we, we all talk about the point guard position and the the limited options that they have there and the fact that they're likely to be spending most of their free agent dollars on point guard you would assume or at least a good chunk of it so I, I was just kind of worried not worried but I was wondering where the money for someone like Marcus Morris may be given that the Bulls are obviously looking for a point guard they currently have no actual credible backup power forward or center on the roster. Uh, you know, ignoring Cristiano Felicio in this in this um, comparison here, so it, it kind of doesn't necessarily make sense to get in a player in free agency who is almost a facsimile of Otto Porter in a sense. And given that the Bulls sort of took themselves out of free agency by a large degree by trading for Otto Porter, it doesn't necessarily make sense to bring in a player who sort of would perform that similar role where he's a sort of a 3-4 shooting option. That kind of doesn't make much sense to me, but I don't know. I don't know how much stock to put into these reports, but I don't love the idea of the Bulls chasing a player like Marcus Morris because I think he makes sense. Like You mentioned his age before. He's 29. He makes more sense for a contender than he does a rebuilding team and the only way you get these type of players, players to a rebuilding team is to pay, you know, an extra two or three million dollars annually, and or maybe you add in on another year or something like that. And I just don't think the Bulls are at that stage in their development curve where they should be, uh, well, they should be thinking about adding a player like Morris. But that's just me. Uh, I think they should go a little bit cheaper, and I, I think Tyler Gibson would be a cheaper option than Morris. And maybe you draft that three-four hybrid that you're wanting off the bench, and I think that makes more sense than than chasing Morris. Yeah, I mean, I think the Bulls have a couple of, like, I think there's a world in which they kind of have their four rotation down with Otto playing those kind of backup four minutes or the small ball four minutes. Um, But in order for that to work, they need to have two-way wings. um, And I think that's really something that they need to invest a little bit more in. I also think, you know, we forget about him because he uh, broke his toe and didn't play for the last bit of the season. But Chandler Hutchison is one of those guys that's also a 3-4 kind of combo. Um, And I think the Bulls, if they are going to get somebody who's at the four, it should be somebody who's like two through four or four through five. Um, Somebody like that who can kind of round out the rest of the roster as opposed to just loading up on one position that, uh, unless you have somebody like a Draymond Green, is not the most important position on the floor in the modern NBA. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And that's why, again, I've mentioned it before, but that's why I like Taj because he's that, he can sort of swing between that four and five position or if it's not Taj Gibson, uh, Ed Davis or someone like that who can give you a little bit more variability up front. Whereas I think the Bulls potentially, depending on uh, what they do at the draft, they could have three or four players who 
you could build a scenario where they could sort of th- swing through that three or four position and you can sort of mix and match the combination of small forward and power forward, be it uh, Otto Porter Jr., Chandler Hutchinson, like I said, if they draft, if they were to draft DeAndre Hunter or Jared Cole or whatever the option may be, that they've got some sort of swing, swingable options there. And I don't know. I, I just, I'm not a big fan of Morrison. Um, like I said, I didn't want to put too much stock into this particular rumor because I doubt he's with the Bulls, but it was something that was reported by a credible outlet, so we had to get on it. But let's move on to the next topic. And I want to talk about a specific trade that went down the other day. Well, it doesn't necessarily relate directly to the Bulls, but uh, I think it does have some implications to the Bulls itself. And I want to talk about this Hawks-Nets trade that went down. So for those that aren't aware, the Brooklyn Nets have traded Alan Crabb the number 17 pick in the 2019 draft, and a 2020 protected first-round pick for Torian Prince and a second-round pick. So the Hawks, they've traded uh, Alan Crabb into their cap space, meaning their projected $41 million in space that they did have has now reduced down to $23 million. So they're going to be less of a play in free agency. And on the net side of the ledger, this deal potentially paves a way where they could get close to adding two max free agents in the offseason. So it's pretty significant for them. But even if they don't go down the path of two max free agents, they do have now $46 million in space, assuming they keep D'Angelo Russell's cap on the books. So it's an interesting trade that went down because it sort of paves the way for a potential, I guess, signing of Kyrie Irving to the Brooklyn Nets, which has been, I guess, a rumor that's sort of been... Um, been ramping up here over the last few days the noise is getting a lot louder in that trade itself but like I said this this trade itself doesn't have direct ramifications for the Bulls but given the Hawks are in a fairly comparable situation in that they're entering year three of their own rebuild they have three really nice pieces on board in Trey Young, Kevin Herter and John Collins along now with three picks in the upcoming drafts I kind of I was looking at this as I always do from a Bulls scope and I was just Fearful is the wrong word, but I'm just kind of cautious of where this Atlanta Hawks rebuild may be going now, particularly if they do hit on these three draft picks. Yeah, I mean, you look at what the Hawks have done, uh, and I think it's a lot of, um, I don't know, I, I, it's it's hard to compare what they've done with what the Bulls have done just because they've gone about it in such a different way. I, obviously, I think it's like a way that you know you and I might prefer but I think they really have more of a vision of what they want to be. Um, you know, you can criticize them for trading down and kind of sacrificing Luka Doncic, but um, as far as isolating and grabbing who they believe to be a franchise player in Trey Young, um, pairing him with, you know, they've got three draft picks this year. They had three last year. You get Kevin Herter, you get Omari Spellman. Uh, Torian Prince was a solid player. I think he's a little bit, uh, overrated, um, but you know he can do some things, and I think he'll probably help the Nets if he stays there. Um, I could see them kind of flipping him again, but um, yeah, I think it's just been like really targeted, intentional moves from the Hawks, and that's I think like what I'm most kind of jealous of. Um, they also brought in uh, a young rookie coach who really has a vision that links up with what Travis Schlank and the, and the front office want to do. Um, and just top to bottom, they seem like a team that really knows what they want and, and is um, kind of laying down the moves to get there pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. It's, they seemingly have a plan and they're obviously sticking to it. And again, whilst I think it's an interesting scenario to compare the rebuilds because, I mean, just, just by chance, the cap space that they do now have is very similar to what the Bulls will have in this offseason. Like I said, they've got their own three three-man uh, three core of their rebuild. Obviously, the Bulls have something similar in Carter, Mark, and Levine. So there's similarities there, but obviously the the Hawks are picking at eight and the Bulls are at seven, but the Hawks now have picks 10 and picks 17 in this draft as well. And I don't know if they'll keep all three picks and make three all pick, uh, make all three picks, but what they can do is actually you know combine some of those picks and actually trade up, which would in turn affect the Bulls themselves. So if the... If the uh, the Hawks were to potentially trade, you know, seven and seventeen or seven and seven and seven, uh, seven and ten rather, maybe jump up to number five, which is what uh, Adrian Wojnarowski was sort of suggesting that may be in play. That affects the Bulls as well from a from a draft standpoint. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I think this draft is a little bit tricky. 
just because beyond Zion, you really don't know what you're going to get. Um, you could go through the lottery and, you know, there could be some guys that end up being, you know, the third or fourth best player in this draft, you know, 15 or 16. And so I think it's a little bit of a risk to move up. Now, if you do have somebody that you really believe in and, you know, your scouts and, and your analytics are telling you, yeah, this is the guy, this is the compliment that we want for Trey Young, and maybe that is Jarrett Culver, um, then yeah, you should, then you should totally go for it. But um, I do think it's a little bit of a risk in this draft more than others. Um, but I also think that that means that the cost to move up might not be as high. Um, and for the Bulls, uh, I think there's probably one scenario in which Jarrett Culver falls to them. And obviously, you know, I think a lot of Bulls Twitter, myself included, is is pretty high on Culver and, and likes him as a potential um, just player and fit for this team. Um, but I haven't really gotten my hopes up just because I think there are too many ways that he doesn't end up on the Bulls, and I would at least have some backup plans um, so that I'm not too disappointed. Well, it's funny you say that because that's exactly where my, where my mind went when this trade went down. Uh, I sort of sort of pictured a scenario in my, my, my own mind where the Hawks maybe package, say, pick 8 and pick 17. They trade that to the Cavs for pick 5. They take Culver at 5, and then the Bulls are left with someone like Kobe White or DeAndre Hunter maybe even Cam Reddish at number seven there. I mean, they're, they're players that have upside, but not ne- names that necessarily excite me too much compared to uh, Culver in, in this instance. But they, the Hawks could potentially make that trade. They could add Culver and then they could still have pick 10 by the wayside sitting there where they could sort of take Brandon Clark or someone of that nature or PJ Washington, whoever it may be. And all of a sudden their rebuild starts looking pretty damn good. And obviously as a Bulls fan, who's uh, in, a, in a similar situation where the team is rebuilding. I'm a little bit concerned about the Hawks now, given given how uh, well their rebuild went last season. I think they sort of overtook the Bulls slightly. And given that they're going into this draft now with three first-round picks, and people like to say that this draft is a bad one and who cares about having an extra first-round pick, number 17 in this draft, but we can't forget that they have a future first next year too. But I think when people say it's a bad draft, they're referring to the fact that the top-end talent isn't necessarily superstar-laden. But I think there's a, like you sort of mentioned there, there's a high high probability that, you know, you can still pick up good players in this draft at, say, the 15 to 20 range. And that's where the Hawks find themselves. You know, there's every chance that someone like PJ Washington, as an example, sort of falls to them maybe at 17 or maybe goes a little bit ahead. But there's still players in that 17 range where you can pick up and can be a can be a contributor to the rebuild. If, if Bulls fans like to think that Chandler Hutchinson is someone that could eventually be a an important piece of these of this rebuild, then there's no reason to think that maybe the number 17 pick that the Hawks have couldn't necessarily do that for them too. So um, I'm slightly concerned, but we'll see how that shakes out in the draft. But another talking point that came out of this trade that at least I've received quite a bit and I want to get your opinion on is the fact that the, that the Nets themselves have almost created two max slots. They're about two or three million shy of having that two max slots, but they can definitely still create that with a couple other moves. But they can only get those two max slots if they let D'Angelo Russell walk. And I think that has drawn the impetus for a lot of Bulls fans to maybe speculate whether the Bulls should be a team that should go after D'Angelo Russell in free agency. And I think Russell is a player coming off an all-star season where he's going to be needing if not a max contract, but a near max contract. So my question is, should the Bulls even entertain the idea of bringing in someone like D'Angelo Russell and effectively pouring all of their cap space that they currently have or maybe potentially need to open up some more into one spot, which would be the point guard position, a position they need to fill. But is D'Angelo Russell the type of player they should be doing that with? No. <laughs> no, I mean, D'Angelo. D'Angelo had uh, a very nice season. You look at the twenty-one points per game, seven assists. Um, he kind of led the Nets to the playoffs, and and they had a really fun season. Uh, but when you dive a little bit deeper into what he actually does, uh, not only do I think it's not very productive, but I just don't think it's what the Bulls really need next to Zach Levine in the backcourt. Um, he shot 43% from the field. I mean, just a really low number. 37% on threes is pretty good. He shot 11 of them. Oh, I'm sorry, that's twos. Uh, he shot eight of them per game. That's solid, but um, he just needs the ball in his hand so much. He had a 31 usage rate. I mean, that 32, excuse me. 
that's uh, Zach Levine level. You just can't really share the ball between two guys like that. Um, he had a 53 true shooting percentage. That's sub-average. Um, he's not a good defender. I just don't think he really offers you much. Um, I think it'd be one of those those classic bull scenarios where you're, you know, I think he fits a timeline a little bit, but and he and he fits the positional need, but uh, he's more of a name than somebody that I would rather that I would kind of want to put money into as a investment. I I completely agree. I kind of was hoping that you would have a different viewpoint for the sake of the podcast. All right, you're gonna have to have Fred back on if you want to have disagreements. Yeah, <laughs> probably, that's probably true. That's line. probably true. But um, I mean, I, I just don't see it. I don't understand why people would want to play either a max to, a contract or anything near a max. And his max deal will pretty much start at like $27 million next season, somewhere in that vicinity. But I mean, he's still young. He's just turned 23. So I guess he does have that on his side. But this is a weird comparison I just thought of, but he's like a super souped up uh, Denzel Valentine. Like he shoots a ton of threes and takes a ton of floaters and doesn't play defense. He's like if Denzel, like if all things possibly worked out well for him. So uh, I just, yeah, I don't think he's that good. No, look, I'm, I'm not that high on him because I mean, his seasons, his production from this season to his previous season didn't necessarily change in terms of his shooting profile as to where. As to the the number of attempts he took, all those sorts of things, it was very very similar. The only thing that sort of did change was his efficiency, which I guess we have to give him credit for. So he does deserve that credit. The fact that he was basically taking the same shots, making the same plays, but rather than rather than in the past where he wasn't necessarily good at it, it did appear that he became quite decent, particularly in those floaters that you sort of mentioned before that he was making those shots at a higher rate than he had previously. So I think that explains more of uh, more of his development but at the same time you sort of touched on it before he had insane usage in Brooklyn and he, and he got that because because of the injuries that the sort of the Nets sustained there like I mean he wasn't even the first option for half the season during that season so I, I don't know what it means for the Bulls but I think Bulls fans maybe they didn't notice it but he was downright bad in the playoffs I mean he averaged uh, 19 and a half points in the playoffs itself, which seems good, but only 3.6 assists from your point guard. Shot the ball 36% from the field goal, from field goal range, uh, uh, from three point line on it, only 32%. So I'll give him a sun break because it is his first playoff appearance. So I'm not going to necessarily crush him too hard. And he's the main focal point going up against the Sixers. So it is a big ask, but. I don't know. I think it's, we should be kind of weary of paying a 23 year old who's only had one you know, star level season and had a pretty bad playoffs, a, a max deal to this Bulls team when he is in large part a, a very close facsimile to Zach Levine. That series went six games, correct? Or was it five? I think it was five. I don't know. Either way, they did they did at least win one they game. They did win one. And his, his on-off net rating differential was minus 43 in the playoffs. <laughs> Not great. So, Not great. Not good. <laughs> Not very good. But I think like that kind of just symbolizes a bigger issue that I think the Bulls are going through right now, which is trying to find a point guard because that's what the roster, that's where there's a biggest hole in the roster. And for me, we're, if you look at the teams in the playoffs, you look at who they're playing through, it's like transcendent level scorers like Steph Curry, um, if you're a point guard, or, and for the most part, it's giant wings who can get their own shot uh anytime down in the half court. And that's why Kawhi Leonard is up 3-1 against the Warriors right now. That's why the Warriors are struggling because they don't have Kevin Durant right now that that can get them a shot whenever they want in the half court. Um, That's why Jimmy Butler looks so damn good in the playoffs against the Raptors because that dude can go get you a bucket, which is what you need. And like Draymond Green is a great example. Pascal Siakam is a great example of guys who are not traditional point guards, but a lot of the offense runs through them. And I think the Bulls should stop worrying about finding a 6'3 point guard who can kind of like be the floor general and start worrying about like guys who you can really run your offense through um, and kind of save Zach Levine from himself. Because I think really what they need is a big playmaker who can get his own shot and create for others. And that's why I like Jarrett Culver. Um, That's why I... I'm still sad that Jimmy Butler is not with the Bulls anymore. Um, that's really what the Bulls need. And even though there's not an opening on the kind of starting lineup for a player like that, 
that's really what the priority should be. I mean, I, I think, look, I 100% agree with you, but I, I just don't see that avenue or where that player or what avenue that player was sort of filter from. I mean, ideally, I, look, look, I completely 100% agree with you. And, you know, part of that, part of your explanation there, particularly the Jared Culver piece, why don't, whilst I never expect him to be, uh, you know, a leader of an offensive sorts, I think he could be a decent second or third option. But I just don't know where that wing option is coming from the ball. So I, whilst I agree with you, I think they almost have to play the hand of sort of handing over the franchise to Larry Markin and Zach Levine until maybe they can sort of trade for that player because I don't see it in coming in the draft, at least this year, and I don't see it happening through free agency. So you either got to hand, hand over the, the keys to your your franchise to players that are already on the roster, be it Levine or Markin, or you bring in a free agent like D'Angelo Russell and hope he becomes that player and I think they're all fraught with danger, but I kind of like the option more of just the internal approach rather than paying a, a ton of money for someone like Russell. But I do agree with what you're saying that ultimately the Bulls need that that high-level wing and probably even you know going even more uh, existential than that. They, they just need a top-five player because we can talk finals now because I wanted to talk finals and anyway and what it specifically means for the Bulls. But in watching these finals, as it always typically is the case, Teams that have a, a top five player on their roster are the ones that are typically competing for a championship and the ones that typically win a championship. And as we've sort of seen here with with the uh, Toronto Raptors, specifically with Kawhi Leonard, who you mentioned, who's arguably been the best player in the NBA during these playoffs, that's the kind of player you need, whether it's a wing, whether it's a point guard, whether it's a center, whatever that player is, you ultimately you need a top three player, a top five player. And I don't want to be fatalistic because it's, it sort of makes the game kind of meaningless if you don't have that type of player. And the Bulls, I don't think, will have that type of player with that with this specific rebuild. But I wanted to talk finals anyway and what it means for the Bulls and not just generally in terms of having that top five player, but in watching this Raptors team, and Will, I know you've obviously been sort of catching these finals pretty closely given the coverage that you sort of had to do with the Warriors. But when I watch this Raptors team, and I sort of equate it to what the Bulls should be doing themselves. I look at this Raptors rotation where they've only got seven or eight players in that rotation, and literally all those players in the rotation are two-way players, the switchable players. They're extremely smart and intelligent players. And I'm thinking more than anything else that, at least as a stepping point, the Bulls should be really concerned with finding two-way players who are very smart basketball players, which is why I like Jared Cole, which is why you probably like Jared Cole too. But... The more I watch this finals team of uh, this finals, and the more I watch this Raptors team, the more I think the Bulls really need to emphasize two way play and smart, intelligent basketball play more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, look back to the Bulls finding like a primary wing. That's obviously much easier said than done. But I guess my point in that is you don't necessarily have to abide by the like basketball rules in quotes of having a traditional one like maybe maybe it's like going in and trading for Alonzo Ball or something which I don't know how realistic that is probably not very but like he's six 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 seven he can facilitate he can defend um and I I don't know I think like you just have to look for options where and maybe it is just like you really believe in Zach Levine as the primary scorer then why go out and get a point guard who's smaller that doesn't give you the switchability one through three or one through four that somebody who's a little bit bigger might. Um, I just think they have to like expand their mind in terms of like what their roster should actually look like. And I think, to be honest with you, like this maybe isn't ideal, but I think putting the running the offense through Zach Levine is the most realistic and likely mm-hmm. scenario for the next year or yeah. three. Mm-hmm. Um, and just like you said, finding those two-way guys, whether it's early or late in the draft. And not just three and D guys, right? Like you need to be able to put the ball on the floor and pass and make plays and attack closeouts, um, which is why you saw Fred Van Vliet start in the third quarter last night, uh, as opposed to Danny Green, yeah. who was just having a rough scoring night. But um, guys who can really do a little bit of everything, like skill all over the floor is the recipe. And, you know, that's that's really what they need to to identify. Yeah, I agree one hundred percent. I mean, like this Warriors team, obviously they're suffering right now because they've got, they're a they're a top loaded team and they're without Kevin Durant and obviously Clay is hobbled. Demarcus Cousins clearly isn't right, so they're clearly being hit with the injury bug as well, which is definitely playing into this into this final series. So it's not necessarily just the Raptors just being 
purely dominant against a healthy uh, healthy Warriors team, but we can see... But the Raptors have been really dominant. I mean, they I mean, have, they've been uh, 100%, but I mean, the Warriors are effectively carrying players who aren't necessarily doing those things that we sort of just said before, like they're carrying or having to play a lot of one-way players or guys that just can't do enough. And whereas the Raptors, who their top-end talent may not be necessarily the, you know as good, theoretically as good, they're able to make that up in other ways by having smart players who can do a lot of different things. And um, I'm glad you mentioned it because Danny Green is a player that we typically think of as a great two-way player because he is. But to your point, you really need those players that can do can do a bit of everything almost. I think all, that is going to be more valued in the modern NBA than just being a specific you know, 3 and D player or just being a one, one-sided offensive player or one-sided offensive player. I think those sorts of all-rounder type players, which Siakam, I guess, was, and he's morphed into something different. I think that's pretty critical in the modern NBA going forward as much as anything else. Yeah, I've really, over the past few years of this Bulls rebuild and even um, before they traded Butler, those kind of two seasons leading up to that, uh, kind of fell into this trap of thinking like, let's run pick and roll every single time down and be the Rockets. And I think, you know, this playoffs for, for the Rockets in particular has kind of made me reevaluate how I feel about that. Um, and you see teams that are, that have been so successful, um, you know, still being able to maximize a three point line, but not necessarily doing it in a, I'm just going to beat pick high pick and roll down your throat every single time down, because that's predictable. That's solvable. Um, and I think what's so special about the Raptors is they can do that. They can isolate Kawhi and beat you one-on-one. If you double him, he'll dump it off. And now you've got Marcus all who's like, you know, one of the best passing bigs ever. And you've got Siakam, who's a great playmaker. And you've got Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry and all these really smart, high IQ, solid defensive, um, shot-making, three-point shooting players. None of them are necessarily on the level of a Clay Thompson or Steph Curry or Draymond Green, but they're all really good at everything. And that's really, I think, the future that the Bulls need to figure out for themselves. Um, and it's not, you know, pounding you know, post hooks for Robin Lopez, but they do need to, and, and that's maybe an argument for adding another true ish point guard um, just to kind of like keep the offense moving through everybody. But, um, and that's, what's made the Warriors so special over the past five or six seasons, right? Like Steph, Dre, Clay, um, DeMarcus Cousins this season, Iguodala, Sean Livingston, all guys who KD can, really make plays, can move the ball and get their own. Um, I think that's, it's kind of just like going back to the basics a little bit, but that's really what this Bulls team lacks and what they should be trying to address. Yeah, I, I agree and I, I 100%. And I guess the other takeaway for me watching these finals as well is the Raptors have been kind of been able to do this whilst playing a pretty damn big lineup. So I know, you know, the Rockets had a different approach against, the Warriors and they went super small. Obviously, having PJ Tucker playing center, having a six foot five center, that that's obviously an interesting concept. And look, it, it was pretty close to working. But the Raptors have been able to do this with Marcus Sol at the center. Obviously, he's nowhere near his prime, but he's still effective. But he's kind of still, I guess, a big lumbering traditional type center. He's obviously remodeled his game slightly by being able to step onto the three point line. And I guess maybe by having Siakam at power forward, maybe makes the the lineup itself a little bit more modern in the sense that he's not your typical power forward but they have played lineups where they've had Serge Ibaka and Gasol out there they have looked they have been the bigger and more powerful team so whilst the Bulls whilst they had some sort of uh, you know whilst I was sort of going into this with a little bit of trepid- uh, trepidation into this rebuild around being rebuilding around two young big men we're seeing the Raptors here playing big and they're sort of being able to reap the rewards by being that bigger team so maybe this uh, this super need to be uh, super small all the time. I, I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the, the profound way of playing basketball after this Warriors sort of dynasty sort of ends here. You know, assuming it does, it may not. But I don't know if the the norm of having someone like uh, Draymond at center or something like that is going to be the is, is going to be the norm to the point where the Bulls may may be able to sort of keep this rebuild intact around Larry Markkinen and Wendell Carter based on what we're sort of seeing out here from the Raptors. Yeah, I think um, I'm actually writing about this for Monday, but so I stole my, my good ideas, but <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, I, I think like basketball IQ is really what it all comes down to. Yeah. Obviously like Draymond's um, length and speed, like his arm, his wingspan or whatever is 
and his like center of gravity all helps him be one of the greatest defenders of all time. Right. But he's also one of the smartest defensive players I've ever seen. And so is Marcus all and like Siakam is right there for being as young as he is. Like, even if you are a little slower, you can always be in the right place. And that just makes it difficult to get shots off. And um, maybe Marcus all like in, in game one, they were kind of trapping Steph high in pick and roll. And he was just getting his hand on a lot of passes and not prevent or not allowing that dump off pass to Draymond. Um, there are other ways to combat that. And I think, you know, if you have a lot of skill at both four and five, yeah, maybe that does work in in kind of the future of the NBA, but they've got to be really smart players. And obviously I think Wendell is that. Um, I think Lowry is kind of working towards that and has been getting a little bit better at just being in the right place at the right time. But that's really learning the game is the most important thing there, in my opinion. Yeah, and I mean, just to add to that, I mean, Nikola Jokic in Denver, in their, in their first playoff appearance, they went to the second round and, uh, Jokic was a big part of that. Obviously, he's probably one of the smartest players in the league. So I, I think I think my big takeaway from this playoff series is that there was a lot of good young big men doing a lot of good things in this playoff series. Not even just young big men, but even older guys like Marcus Sol and even Serge Ibaka sort of popping in here in the last couple of games, being pretty influential off the bench. But it kind of makes me a little bit more buoyant about this Bulls rebuild, particularly around rebuilding around two young bigs. I think, to your point, is so long as those two young bigs have the ability to do multiple things on the court. They can um, they can be two-way players and they're smart players. I think you can get away with that and you don't necessarily have to be small all the time whilst I think the Bulls obviously should play small when they when it makes sense. I think that's been a big takeaway. But bringing it back to what we were talking about before and you know potentially bringing through D'Angelo Russell to this team, I think another thing with this Raptors team is that you just can't afford to carry you know one bad defender, let alone two in a, in a lineup. And... I think the Raptors just don't have that, in, in, at least in their rotation. I mean, there isn't a bad defender to be seen, let alone a below-average defender. So having someone like um, D'Angelo Russell coming in to pair with Zach Levine, I think that would be a complete disaster. And I think it would limit what you can do in the potential playoffs. And I'm not suggesting the Bulls need to worry about getting to the finals and how a Russell-Levine combination would sort of fare in the finals. I think they've got a, a, you know, a few more hurdles to, uh, to clear before that stage. But... I think even just being a decent playoff team, I think you put yourself in a lot of you, know, you put yourself under a lot of pressure by having a, a limited backcourt like that. But so I, I sort of going back to what we said before, where you know if the best option is sort of running your offense through Levine and Markin, and then you really need to make sure that the the rest of the spots on the roster are two way guys, smart guys, defensive guys that can do a lot of things because you just can't afford to carry multiple bad defenders. Totally, I think if they're going to go after. A- restricted free agent point guard that should be Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, that dude yeah. can shoot the lights out. He's a great passer. Um, he's a very good defensive player. He was actually on Kawhi for a lot of closing minutes in that series. Um, he's been just really impressive, really smart. He's not going to wow you with athleticism or anything like that, but he can shoot the hell out of the ball and he can, he's just a smart player who can make plays. Um, I don't think the Bulls should necessarily be handing out $20 million contracts to like each of the five starters. But um, if they're going to do that, like I would much rather see it happen for, for Brogdon than D'Angelo. Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm on record saying that I don't want the Bulls really going after restrictive free agents. I specifically don't want them, you know, paying a max contract to a restricted player is probably not worth it. But, you know, whatever the number is, assuming it's comparable, if if the decision had to be Malcolm Brogdon or D'Angelo Russell in a vacuum, then I completely 100% agree with you that Malcolm Brogdon is exactly the type of player we've just been basically talking about in comparison to to D'Angelo Russell, who's a player I do not want, but... Yeah, having said that, I don't want to necessarily see the Bulls being overpaying for restricted free agents either. But uh, look, that's just about it for today, Will. I wanted to um, let you plug anything that you have coming out coming out in the next couple of days. I know you did just mention uh, you gave us a little bit of a teaser as to what you have coming out on Monday. But obviously, the finals are still going on on Monday night. We've got Game Five. But what? Uh, yeah, just just give us a quick plug of what you got coming up. Plug your Twitter. Do all that sort of stuff for us. Let me say one more thing about the Bulls and spending money. Um, which is that there was another report or another line in that Shams report about the Thunder looking to salary dump for a pick. I think that's a much better use of money. I've said this many times. I know I'm not the only one, but 
Um, for the same reason that we are high on the Hawks uh, getting all these draft picks, I think the Bulls should be looking to spend their money that way. Um, taking more bites at the apple. Uh, they're not signing free agents. They're not contending right now. Take on some bad money, get some picks out of it, and go from there. Um, and then for plugging myself, yeah, I've just been writing a lot of like post-Warriors game stuff. Um, so the last couple of games that I've been at had some good stories for. Last night I kind of wrote about how the Raptors were the ones who like took it to the Warriors in the third quarter, which has been kind of a, a, tr- a common trope of Warriors games over the past several years. Um, and it's kind of symbolized this whole shocking series and uh, just out of a crazy, potentially last game at Oracle Arena. And then, yeah, I'll be writing about more about how the Raptors have shocked the Warriors in this series so far. Um, and kind of used the Warriors' strengths against them against them for Monday at Bleacher Report. So um, I'll tweet it all out at Won't Gottlieb. Um, and yeah, look for me there. Yeah, and look, potentially the last game of the NBA season coming out tonight. So this will be released Monday morning. The game five will be Monday night. Hopefully, it's not the last game of the NBA season. But if it is, it's been an amazing finals to uh, to be witnessing from from my vantage point. But will you've been in in the actual stadiums? So um, that's that's pretty damn cool. You've been covering this uh, this Warriors team pretty closely, so if nothing else, I mean, you've been able to experience some some awesome basketball. But I appreciate you coming onto this part onto this podcast and maybe talking about a team that doesn't necessarily play that great of a brand of basketball. But I appreciate it nonetheless. Anytime, man. It's always good to vent about the Bulls. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I definitely need someone to do that with. So thanks to Will for coming on to the pod today. Thank you for listening, Bulls fans. We'll be back again shortly. We'll probably focus more on the draft on the next pod as we sort of ramp up towards the draft going forward. We're only two weeks away. It's getting closer. We'll see what the Bulls do. I'm getting excited, and as, as should you, Bulls fans. But we'll be back again very shortly. Check me out on Twitter at MK Hoops. Follow the show on, on Twitter as well at Bulls HQ Pod. Five-star reviews on iTunes. If you get a moment, I really do appreciate it. But until next time, this has been Bulls HQ. Speak soon, Bulls fans. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.